From the Asset Builder headquarters in Dallas, Texas, welcome to Keep It Simple, a show that discusses simple techniques and philosophies to help de-stressify investors around the world. I'm your host, Jared Herzog, and welcome to the show. Today, we're learning from our esteemed veteran registered investment advisor, Adam Morse, and our human economic database and fearless CIO, Michael French. And today we're talking about investment horror stories. Um, so these are stories that have happened to real people that Michael and Adam both have never heard before. Um, and I tell them what happened to these to these poor souls, and Michael and Adam react and give advice based on what those people did in those stories. So it turned out to be really good and very interesting. We might do a few more podcasts like this. So if you guys like it, be sure to let us know. You can always email us at podcast at assetbuilder.com. Uh, and there you can also give us any topic ideas or questions that you'd like Michael and Adam uh, to discuss. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening in and tuning in each and every week. Our podcast continues to grow, and it's so awesome to see our numbers grow up every single month. Thank you so much for listening. All right, guys, without further ado, let's get to the show. Adam, if you and Michael had to play a game of chess, who who do you think would win? Just, just based on sheer wit, I think Michael probably. I think just in sheer intellectual horsepower, I think Michael's got me beat pretty significantly. Um, significantly, you don't think you put up a good a good fight? For one reason, I'm not particularly good at chess. I wasn't raised playing chess. I've recently, in the last couple of years, me and my buddy have kind of gotten into it, so we'll play every once in a while. But I'm just not that experienced with it. Uh, but even if you were to equalize for that experience factor between Michael and I, um, I think he's probably just better at thinking out all the different, you know, outcomes, different scenarios, different strategies that could happen and then optimizing for the best one. Michael, do you agree I'm, with that? I'm perfectly comfortable in saying that, that no way <laughs> keeps me up at night. I would say, uh, I would choose Adam, uh, simply oh. because Adam oh, here we go. is, no, Adam's, <laughs> so I don't, I don't do well at things I don't care about. If I don't think it matters, I don't care. So like we've talked before about basketball. And so when I stopped playing competitive basketball, now my only goal in in playing basketball is to exercise and not get hurt. And I hate pickup games because everybody starts throwing elbows. You lose teeth, ankles get twisted. And I'm like, well, that was great. And what? Well, that's just part of the aging process, Michael. I hate to tell you. Shut up. (laughs) I would kick Adam's butt. (laughs) So, so, so chess, because it can take a long time to, I mean, I'm not good enough that I would destroy Adam in five moves. So it's going to be this long drawn out process Adam's an Enneagram eight where he's persistent. I'm like, eh, I don't really care if I beat Adam or not. It doesn't prove anything. Let's put it this way. If I can lose in five minutes or win in 20, those extra 15 minutes, I can use doing something interesting to me. (laughs) Beating Adam. So this is pretty much a wash of a question. (laughs) This is pretty much a wash of a question because what Michael's saying is, well, Adam would win. Because it would yeah. grieve him so greatly to lose in a competitive environment, he would use all of his minuscule intellectual ability, and I just couldn't be bothered to get out of bed for this for this lame competition. I so I would only use maybe six percent of my power. No, and for that reason, he would win. How's that for an answer, Jared? Ladies and gentlemen, these are your advisors right here. <laughs> all right. So uh, today we are talking about uh, investment 
horror stories. So these are a series of situations that have happened to real people um, that have been reported by basically financial advisors in, in other places, too. Get ready. I'm excited to hear all of them. Okay, so I'm calling this Love Thy Neighbor or Not. So the story starts. Uh, not this Michael, but Michael and his partner purchased land in rural Pennsylvania from their neighbor. The thing was the neighbor had a loan on the property and the bank that held the mortgage wouldn't allow them to parcel or wouldn't allow the parcel to be divided up. So Michael and his partner decided to refinance the loan for their neighbor. That way the neighbor could sell them a portion of that land. Quote, the neighbor didn't owe much and we felt it was relatively uh, a risk-free investment. So during the four-year contract, the neighbor didn't pay on time a single time. And Michael was forced to chase him around to collect payments. Quote, each time, each time payments were due, the neighbor always had some fantastic sob story, and we felt guilty demanding payment. The lesson learned that they say is don't be too nice and avoid doing business with your neighbors. Is being a neighborly person and being nice like always a bad thing to do? Like, should you go into business like that? with your neighbor you know maybe that's a dumb question but you know what i'm saying like would you guys do that would you guys help your neighbor out like that so to be clear the neighbor is the guy that they bought the land from yeah is that is that who we're characterizing as the neighbor here okay yeah so the whole philosophy of lending money to friends is or, or family i think is for me personally I will just give it to you, and if you can give it back, that'd be great. Um, it is It is also, though, true that I think you can lend money to people who you know, um, and it can be a good investment. Like if a friend comes to you and says, hey, I'm you know, going to start a restaurant, and you look at your friend, and he's a restaurateur, and all these things are true. Um, you know, but he's got it. He's, he's been successful in the past. He's, uh, maybe over leveraged or something. Um, you can enter into a contract with your friend. Um, I think that the thing that you have to reconcile on the front end is that at some point, if it came down to the friendship or the money, you would be comfortable choosing one or the other. Like you would be comfortable parting with a friend because it's a significant amount enough enough amount of money that you would part with a friend, or conversely, I would you know to save this friendship, I would give up that hundred thousand dollar investment. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think I agree with that completely. Um, I think you could probably look at you know loaning a neighbor money or or going into business and doing something nice for your neighbor from a financial standpoint, if it's their personally, you know, if they needed to keep their house afloat, right? That's one way to look at it. That's more on a personal level. But obviously then to Michael's point, if it's in a business environment where that is the structure of the conversation and that's acknowledged by all parties, then certainly having a more formal structure and environment around the process is probably wise. Um, I think the story you used if it was coming from the perspective of the neighbor yeah. and he had approached the two individuals saying, Hey yeah. guys, I am in trouble. I need your help to refinance my property. Then, you know, that's coming at it more from a yeah. neighborly perspective, but it sounds like they were just looking to make an investment in some land and he took yeah. them up on it. So I would put that outcome more at the feet of bad risk assessment, right. And bad credit worthiness assessment okay. uh, on the part of the two investors. All right. You guys ready for the next one? Yeah. 
Okay, I'm calling this Very. the tw- the tw- <laughs> uh, I'm calling this the twelve percent advisor. Okay, so a few years ago, I was competing for a client's business. This is from the point of view of a advisor. Okay. Um, a few years ago, I was competing for a client's business. I was one of the two other advisors who were being interviewed, and I gave my traditional spiel. It turns out that one of the guys I was up against had guaranteed to the potential client that he could make 12% in the stock market. Now, keep in mind, this was not before 2008, and even if it was, it wouldn't matter. The advisor uh, was using basic mutual funds and still had the audacity to claim that my client could uh, net him a guaranteed 12% return. I was in shock. Uh, luckily, the potential client saw right through the smoke and mirrors and didn't choose him and chose me instead. Guys, who is saying that? 12%? That seems preposterous that advisors would be out there saying something like that. Has that ever been your experience or have you ever seen anything like that? I can tell you right now, we have something similar uh, in internally where somebody has come to us and said a very, very, very reputable company, mutual fund company, has told them that they can assure them, not guarantee, but assure them that they can withdraw a certain amount of money over their lifetime and end up with a certain balance. And so, um, yes, I think it happens frequently. Um, what we, what I've done is take uh, the assumptions that this person has given me. I've, I've looked at the historical performance of the funds that this, this company has proposed and pointed out that uh, assurance means if you ran a bunch of simulations, 75% of the time, you would end up with this positive outcome. We can do the same thing. Uh, so if somebody says the honestly the what you're what you're asking is pretty much on the same level. Um, now they aren't promising these people that they'll get twelve uh, percent return, but they are saying, "Hey, we assure you, you know, that you're going to be able to end up with X, even though you're taking out a certain amount of money." I think it's way too common in our industry. Uh, for people to use words that um, are not precise. I've done it before, too, so I don't want to you yes. know, pretend I've never done it. But <clears throat> it's also very important to ask an advisor what they mean by, well, what do yes. you mean you ran a bunch of simulations? Do you, do you even understand yep. what that means? So, for instance, uh, if, if I go out and I say, well, if you had begun in 1935, this would have been your experience. If you began in 1936, this would have been your experience. But that's because we know that historical data. And so anytime we're looking into the future, all we're doing is saying, hey, given all the information that we have and what is most likely to occur in interest rates and in equity returns and in, you know, currency fluctuations, all of these things boil down into this is what we are most likely going to experience. There's no guarantee. So for instance, people will say, well, if I buy an annuity, there's a guarantee. Well, if you go back to the year 2007 
and I told you AIG is going to have largest insurance company in the world is going to have trouble meeting their financial obligations in their annuity business, what would you have said? Or if I had told you that the Hartford Insurance Group was going to exit the annuity business because of you know financial difficulties, most people would have looked at you like you were crazy. But yet that was the case that ended up those ended up being, you know, uh, this that that ended up being a situation. And so I think when people use that word guarantee, even around annuities, well, you're you're guaranteed as long as that insurance company is still solvent. And that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. They can go insolvent. Yeah, I think uh, I don't have a whole lot to add because I agree with everything that Michael just said. Um, I, I think it's one of those. To be very clear, the advisor that was representing a guarantee of 12%, assuming that the structure was you know, pure mutual funds and just market-based returns, uh, he's wrong. He, yeah. he or she is wrong. Yeah, um, yeah. Simple answer. But yeah. I, I think you know, the second layer of that is exactly what Michael said. I think a lot of times the language that's used is just very important and oftentimes not good enough. Um, you know, legally, you cannot guarantee, right? Like that is a legal requirement. Mm-hmm, yeah. You may not represent a guarantee of returns. But that's, so as an advisor, you know that, right? But if you're of ill intent, you could tell someone, you could not use the word guarantee, but still absolutely give the impression of a guarantee. So in other words, if I say, you could be very confident of this return based on data, or I could guarantee it to you. Whether I say very confident of or guarantee, a potential client based on their their knowledge level could very easily walk away with the exact same conclusion based on that language. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. not just not using the word guarantee or not representing a guarantee. It's articulating the difference between a guaranteed investment as a proper term, right, such as an annuity, and a non-guaranteed investment, and what that actually means, what that describes, the nature of the investment itself not being guaranteed. There is no minimum bottom. Mm -hmm. So I I think going to that next level of detail is really, you know, that's the fiduciary responsibility. That's why it's important to work with a fiduciary, because it's not just enough to, quote unquote, not guarantee. Yeah. So, I I mean, one of the things that we do, and, and, and I think it's something that you should ask in almost any financial relationship like this is, okay, what's the worst case scenario? So one of the things that we do is like when we model out income portfolios, we we model out what would happen if the worst, say you've got a 25 year horizon and we take all the those 25 years of returns and we say, what would happen if we had the worst experience in the first five years? Would this person still survive? Or when we construct a portfolio, we say, okay, in the worst scenarios, what was the worst three-year return or five-year return? And then you sit down with the client and you say, let me ask you this. If in three years, this has been your experience, but long-term, you're still on track, are we still going to be good or not? And I mean, it's not, you know, hiring a financial advisor or working with somebody who's, who's managing your money isn't the same as a marriage, but it, I think it's interesting that when you, you know, get married and you say for better, for worse, I think everybody's just assuming like, oh, you're going to get wealthier. You're going to be better looking. You're going to be, 
you know, happier. Well, no, you're going to have some rough patches. And so I don't think very many people go into a marriage or any relationship saying, hey, just FYI, um, there are going to be some downtimes. There are going to be some things that uh, are going to stress this relationship. Are we still going to be able to work together? Are we still going to be good? And what Adam just said, I think that's really important is it's not it's not just that you're not making a false statement. I think it's actually good to say, hey, by the way, this could be a bad, you know, this could be our negative experience. Let me tell you what the worst three years I've ever had with a client have been. Mm -hmm. And let's see if you and I would still want to work together if that was our experience. Yeah, guaranteeing 12% seems pretty preposterous. It, it is. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a very simple answer. That That is incorrect. <laughs> Should not have yeah. done that. Yeah. All right, you guys doing good so far? Ready. Yeah. All right, here's the next one. I had a client whose mother was doing business with another advisor a couple towns over. The daughter had a funny feeling about that advisor, though. She urged her mom to transfer to me. So when her mom and her account... When her mom brought her account statements, I couldn't believe what I saw. I asked the daughter and the mother what the intent of the investment was, and both agreed that safety of principle was a major concern. I don't know why they didn't mention this, but this this lady is 80 years old, the, the client. So when okay. I hear an 80-year-old widow tell me that she's worried about her principle and she needs to access the money in a short amount of time, immediately I'm thinking CDs, money market, or savings account. Well, not this advisor. No, this advisor put most of her money into different preferred stocks and long-term bonds. One of the preferred stocks had a maturity date of 2040. Now, for those of you that don't understand how preferred stocks work, they resemble a hybrid of stocks and a bond, so they can fluctuate like a stock and pay interest like a bond. Well, the time when the mother needed the money, interest rates were fluctuating, and in just a few months span, she saw a 30% drop in principal on those preferred stocks. When she needed the cash out of those investments to generate some cash, she was taking a huge loss in principal. Sure, her investments were paying very high dividends at the time, but that was of little comfort after taking such a huge hit on her money. The lesson learned is if you think you need access to money, to the money in your investments in the short term, don't let an advisor con you into buying another, anything other than a CD. Do you guys agree with that? No. You don't agree with that? I don't. <laughs> Shockingly, uh, <clears throat> based on your very last part of that, which was should only buy a CD. Um, if I heard you correct, I didn't I mean, say that. Now, so nowadays, that's not going to work. Um, even if I mean, if you need income, unless you are sitting on you know much more assets just in raw cash than you need, which I guess if you're 80 is possible. But then, if that's the case, you also can sustain some risk without threatening your income needs. So. I disagree with you there. Now, I, I do, I think, agree with the spirit, the, the principle behind the story, which is have your goals matched to your investments. So mm-hmm. in that scenario, sure, it does sound like she may have been exposed to some um, higher risk vehicles than would have been necessary. But I think there's just more detail that would have been needed there. I, I don't like, for instance, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having some equity in a portfolio for an 80 year old. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Really? I think the, I think the maturation might've been too far out for an 80 year old. Um, you know, if, if you're 80 single woman, your life expectancy is what Michael, you probably know better. Like six years, maybe. Years. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So, you know, a, 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 at the time, I don't know when this was written, but a 10 year maturity might be a little too long. 
Um, and maybe the the raw allocations on the on the equity side were too high. Maybe she had too much of that as a percentage relative to the bonds. Um, and so I certainly agree with yes. You need to make sure that your advisor understands a couple of things. One, your risk tolerance. How much right. you just innately as a human are comfortable with market volatility, with seeing your accounts go up and seeing them go down. Two, what are your goals, right, for this money relative to where you are in life, right? If your goal is, and, and this gets confused a lot too, because just because you're, let's say, in your 30s doesn't mean that you have to be a aggressive growth investor with all of your money, mm -hmm. right? And this is something I talk about with clients all the time. If you're, let's say, 32, recently married, wife's pregnant, well, what's something you might be looking at doing? Buying a home. Let's see, you want to do that in the next one to two years. Okay, well, on the set of your assets that are earmarked for that down payment, guess what you don't want to be doing? You don't want to be taking really big swings at the plate trying to hit a home run. That's just right. not a good idea because then you're risking a big drop in value right when you find that house that you love. And so it's just understanding what your goals are and making sure that based on those goals, we're taking the right amount of risk for the proper amount of estimated return. So I don't know if I answer your question directly or not, um, but I just think that that particular story, I don't know if that's the best one that demonstrates you know, a raw misuse of, of that logic. But the, the, he did say that there was a 30% drop in principle, so she wasn't able to take out stocks. I mean, because she was in too risky of a, you know, no, portfolio. I would, well, I, I would say this. It, it, the, the, the question that you asked, I think, is should the, or the, the recommendation was only to have your money in CDs, to right, only right. have your money in CDs. I think, I mean, the way that there's something called peak to trough that, that says, um, th that tries to answer the question, how long would it take this portfolio to recover? And so if it's at a certain level, it drops down and then it recovers. How long does that recovery take? Historically, has it taken longer than two or three years? Does it take, you know, what, what is the biggest? So that's, it's another way of looking at volatility. The reason that's important is in those intervening two or three years, is there anything in the portfolio that hasn't lost value that I can get my money out of without having to sell at a loss? So if the answer is yes, and so let's say that your peak to trough is three years. So even though I lost value, there was something in that portfolio that would have given me the three years of income that I needed, then it's okay. Right. Because right. so so does everything have to be in short term CDs? No. But should you have the immediate needs of the next two years, let's say, mm -hmm. um, invested in something that is more stable? Yes, because I'm not trying to like Adam said, in the case of somebody trying to buy a house. The money that I have set aside for the house, I'm not trying to double the size of my down payment because what's the risk that I don't get to buy a house? Like, sure, right. I might double yeah. the size of my down payment. I mean, you could take that and you could say, well, then you should be investing in options. You should take the full $50,000 that you have and you should put them in options because you know what? You could pay cash for the house if your options did well, or we could take the whole $50,000 and not have a house. Like, so 
anything that's, I think if you look and you say, well, what's the, for an 80 year old, there's a possibility that she's still going to be around in 90 years. And so there's 90? some of that money. I don't know. Oh, 90. Sorry, at yeah. age 90, right. Yeah. So, so there is still, otherwise, there is a possibility, though. Amazing. Um, <laughs> right. But, but so you would look and you would say, well, there is some of that money that needs to be allocated for that 10 year time horizon. Now, it also needs to be a smaller percentage and it needs to have. Uh, a, a smaller likelihood associated with it because that's not the most immediate problem that we're going to be trying to solve. So I, when yeah. we look back at earlier this year, for instance, um, when we were talking to clients who were in a withdrawal stage, uh, for most of them, they were pretty relaxed because it's like, well, you're fully funded for this year. We've already taken care of this year and you'd be fully funded for next year. Like you're that the money that we have set aside to pay for this year and next year is not at risk in any way. In some cases, it is literally sitting in your banks because you've you know funded yourself. In some cases, it's in very short term, uh, like you said, CDs. But that's not at risk. So, do you want to worry yeah. about you know am am I going to have returned to today's market in five years? Okay, that's a different question. And so I think that 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 advisor wasn't uh, maybe didn't have things Con. duration matched mm-hmm. and maybe wasn't conning the person. I think the other thing is to ascribe a motive. You would have to also ask, was that advisor compensated differently to make the recommendation yep. that they made? Right. Right. Um, because you want to work with somebody who's being compensated. If you're working with an advisor, make sure that they're being compensated to pursue your best interests. Right. And, and, and not, to, not to beat a dead horse on this one, but this is such a broader, like there's so many different lessons you can take from just a little tiny story like that. Um, <clears throat> one of which is like, Jared, I can give you a real world example, really short that as to why I was so quick when you asked me to say no, just right off the bat. Okay. So I can understand how that initial advisor working with the 80 year old woman hears her say, hey, I'm elderly. I I have a low risk tolerance. I just need to know this income is going to be there. And so he hears that chief concern. Now, the easy thing to do as an advisor, right? If if you just want to keep business and you don't want to risk losing that client and and you just want to lock in her business, right? Mm -hmm. The easy thing to do is to put her money all in CDs because guess what you're going to be able to do? You're going to be able to write her, her, not write her, but you're going to be able to provide her her monthly checks to sustain her income, and she is not going to have any risk tolerance issues. But what you have failed to do is do the more difficult thing, which is to help educate her, which is a longer process. It's a more arduous process mm-hmm. um, and, and a more timely process, but to educate her on the, the, the opportunity cost of being that conservative mm-hmm. and explaining to her and teaching her how, hey, we can kill two birds with one stone. We can lock up your income. We can make sure that the things that you need to have covered are covered. But let me explain to you how, you know, it's very possible that at the same time, this woman, if educated on that is a possibility, would like to leave her daughter some assets at her death. Mm-hmm. So you're doing a disservice to these secondary goals if all you do is try to meet the first goal of your client, because they might not be aware that secondary and tertiary goals exist. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So it's just going that extra step and doing the harder thing of, and that's really what an advisor's job is. A lot of times, you know, folks just, it's like when I go to, you know, I'm not putting us on any level near doctors. We're not, it's not even close, but it's like when I go to the doctor, I don't sometimes know the questions to ask. I just know that like my right arm hurts. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. I don't know what the causes can be. I, don't, I, I definitely don't know what to do to fix it. So it's helpful. I would like more information from my doctor rather than less, right? Ask me more questions rather than less. And same thing here. A lot of times clients come in, they just, they don't necessarily know the things they should be thinking about. And so always, always help facilitate that conversation in a broader way. And this is a perfect example of that. All right. You guys ready for the last one? Ready? Go for it. Okay. So this gentleman, he is a financial advisor, says his company worked with a young beneficiary in the early 1980s who inherited $100,000. This question probably has Michael written all over it. So he turned 20, <laughs> he turned 21, took the money, and bought exotic birds, he says. So the idea was to how, breed How much them. money was it? 100000 Okay. It's, a, it's an inheritance. Okay. Uh, so, so the idea was to breed them and to have a store selling these animals. Unfortunately- Shaky first couple steps. Right. See if it gets better. Yeah, it gets so much better. Unfortunately, the birds all died within a couple months, and basically it oh. spent it all in 90 days. Uh, so this advisor isn't a big fan of- <laughs> This advisor isn't a big fan of trust because of their administrative costs, but he says they are useful when a beneficiary has special needs or is a spendthrift. So money placed in a trust for that spendthrift beneficiary and invested in a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds could have grown to a nice nest egg in the 34 years since then. Uh, if the initial $100,000 had grown at an average of 8% a year, it would now be worth approximately $1.4 million. Instead, it disappeared like a feather blown away in the wind. <laughs> mm, I see what you did there. Yeah. That's so, great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very clever. Very clever. So, Michael, you've, you've gone into this before about inheritance, how it's kind of like winning the lottery, you know, and that yeah. kids should be educated on what to do with their inheritance. Yeah, I think there's a lot of examples you can look at. There's a lot of ways. Maybe there aren't a lot of ways that people come into money, but there are, uh, you know, several different ways people come into money. I think we're, we can all look at professional athletes, for instance, and mm. um, you, you look at a professional athlete who uh, goes through school, gets drafted, all of a sudden has $20 million. Um, by the way, 20 million isn't 20 million. There's some taxes, there's some this, there's some that. Uh, friends, family come crawling out of the, the woodwork mm. to say, hey, can I have some of that? And uh, the money's just gone. Uh, you know, the, the statistics around bankruptcy after you're two years out of the league or five years out of the league are astonishing, regardless of what sport you play. Um, so that's, you know, just an interesting, another interesting way of, uh, look, of looking at how do young people who have no real experience with money, what is the ultimate outcome uh, with those people and their money? So, uh, I think the one thing that that is true is just because you get a lot of money doesn't mean you're good at managing the money, good at managing your expenses. Mm. Um, you know, every human is essentially a set of uh, assets and liabilities. If you think of a human as an income statement, some of us are really good at making the money, but we're also really good at spending it, which mm. means we can end up with almost nothing. Some of us are really good at 
being frugal, but not very good at making money, but we might end up actually with more wealth than the guy who's great at making it, but also spends a lot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a, as a person, you have to have both of those things, both sides of that equation. Am I good at spending it? And am I, uh, you know, at least somewhat frugal? Do I, do I make decisions about whether or not to spend on this or that? Or do I think I always have to have both of whatever it is? Uh, So I think what this advisor is saying that's interesting is people need some mechanism in place to control the spending because the money, if, if if you're starting with the assumption that the money's there, I'm going to leave an inheritance, there's going to be a trust, there's then, then. Uh, we're not asking, hey, have you, uh, or do you have the ability to generate wealth? We're just asking, hey, do you have the ability to control spending? So I would agree uh, to the extent that most people who uh, just come into a sum of money, uh, most people do need some help in controlling that spending. A lot of people who work with athletes put them on an allowance. Successful financial advisors who who work with people put them on an allowance. And that's got to be hard for a kid who, you know, all of a sudden has $20 million to be told, hey, you don't you don't necessarily just get to spend the full 20 on the assumption that you're going to get a contract three years from now that's going to pay you, you know, 150 million. And and so by the same token, if you, you have a 27-year-old kid who comes in and their parents have died, um, sitting down and saying, okay, let's develop a budget. Um, if it's not a lot of money, it's not, it's not like you're going to be able to quit your job and go do whatever uh, because you don't have enough for the rest of your life. But I think people, people generally... Um, as they age, have other people who come into their lives, whether it's spouses or friends or, or somebody who they bounce financial decisions off of. Um, if you're 20, I think the the friends you have around you are probably also 20. And so you're mm-hmm. bouncing your questionable thought processes off yep. a bunch of other people who also uh, might be thinking, yeah, going to Ibiza, that's the best way we can spend this money. And, you know, I mean, they're benefiting too. So, you know, having people, surrounding yourself with people, whether it's in a trust or friends, um, is always a good idea. So I, I wouldn't say that a trust is uh, a bad idea. I would just argue that everybody needs somebody in their life who's uh, helping them think through financial decisions. This is like, if I had a dollar for every time I use this phrase, I wouldn't be on this podcast right now. (laughs) But a trust is like any other financial account, investment vehicle, anything. It's a tool in the toolbox, right? Use the right tool for the right job. Problem is, a lot of times it gets used when it shouldn't be used, right? Don't use a screwdriver where you need a hammer and vice versa. It's, It's a fairly straightforward concept. The requirement is I have to know what a screwdriver does. I have to know what a hammer does. And I have to be able to recognize the difference right. between a nail and a screw. Right. So that's the base of this problem. Now, Jared, there are a lot of investments. There are a lot of ways that investors can make bad investments where I'm sympathetic to the investor. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of ways you can get confused. Um, however, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the exotic bird investment. <laughs> Uh, you know, that one just doesn't really pass the common sense sniff test. Like, okay, hey man, it was the 80s. How do I want to go about this? Now, 
honestly, I would almost have more sympathy if he just said, you know what? Like, I just am into exotic birds. I think they're cool. And I just want to buy $100,000 worth of exotic birds with no actual expectation for making a business out of it. Because I've been 21 before. I've done dumb things. So <laughs> yeah. I can understand that. But this idea you're going to make money off of exotic birds, you know, this, is, yeah. this falls into a subclass of just obvious no's. <laughs> but obviously, yeah. kind of outside of that, just to tap on what Michael said, I think the mis- the seeds for this mistake were laid way before he inherited the hundred thousand yep. dollars. The seeds of this mistake were laid when his father, I believe, is what you said, when his father did not actively take part in educating his son and having conversations with his son about the likelihood of him inheriting this money, what he would like him to do with it, or how he believes he should handle it educating his son on practical financial matters, good ways to invest, bad ways to invest, things like compound interest, things like debt. So mm-hmm. there are ways you, if you're antitrust, right? Antitrust in the sense of an antitrust document, then what you should be is pro-education for your children, mm-hmm. right? So you can avoid a trust if you don't like the fees associated and the different mechanisms involved, that's fine. Just make sure that you're doing your part and educating them before they ever get to that point so that they have the, the verbiage and the understanding and the tools they need to make the decisions they're going to have in front of them. Yep. Or, and, and you know what, to be quite honest, it's totally okay to acknowledge, you know what, well, maybe I'm 65, maybe my kid's 28, 29, 30, whatever, and just looking at their life, I love them to death, but they're kind of struggling. So. I could do all the work I want in trying to educate them, but there's a good chance it's going to go in one ear and right out the other. So I'm going to set up a trust, right? Or if I just know that I'm not the kind of parent that's going to educate my kids on these matters, maybe I don't understand them very well. Okay, set up a trust so that they don't have to make those decisions. Someone like myself, I have my youngest daughter special needs. She needs lifelong care. We've Mm -hmm. obviously taken advantage of a trust for obvious reasons. So at the end of the day, I would just say, it's a tool in the toolbox, use it in the right scenario, and educate your kids. That's the easiest thing you could do to avoid these kinds of stories. Talk to your kids. Right. So, Michael, if you were a much younger, less uh, financially shrewd human mm-hmm. being, what would be your exotic birds if you had inherited a hundred thousand uh, dollars? Um, travel. travel. Travel for sure. Yeah, I think. Yeah. A uh, hundred thousand, though. Well, I mean, are you wow. are you saying like if I had to spend just to point all out how I said earlier, Michael is more intellectually powerful than me. I literally thought you were asking him what kind of exotic birds would he buy. <laughs> I was like, man, I don't know. I don't. I'm not familiar with any exotic birds. I don't know. <laughs> I would just have had to say toucan because that's kind of the only one. <laughs> that's the only like, bird I know. So, I was going to say flamingo. I, I don't even know if that's oh, exotic. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, go we, ahead. We should we should do that game that kids play where it's like clap clap bounce bounce i say a bird and then clap clap bounce bounce you say a bird and we see yeah, who exactly. runs out of birds first because like uh, after Zucan and flamingo i've got parrot and then i'm exactly. like man i don't know after parrot i'd be done no but I, I think travel makes sense for you michael i think that's actually the a very accurate answer knowing you well and, and the funny thing is like you know early in my career my job uh paid for me to travel and and it was really kind of cool because I got to live in different parts of the world uh, for months at a time, even early in my marriage. And so it, it was fortunate because I was able to, you know, experience some of these things that that 
I grew up overseas, and so I've I've always been interested and loved other cultures. But but I think I think we all have that thing. Um, it, that if you if you ask somebody if you said, hey, I'm going to give you an amount of money that's not life changing. That's in other words, it's not going to allow you to just sit and and do nothing. But I'm going to give you a hundred thousand dollars, and you have to spend it. It is interesting to see what people would do with it. Um, yeah. If you ask my wife that exact same question, she could not bring herself to tell you what she would do because it just would grate on her to think that she had to spend it because she's such a saver. Mm. Uh, it, and I'm I'm actually much much. Uh, I'm the spender of the, yeah. of the two of us. And so, uh, I don't know, Adam, what would you do? Well, I've been thinking about it as you were talking and I'd have to say flamingo, honestly, <laughs> no, um, I, I think thinking back to that age, um, I hate this answer because it's so cliche, but like I was raised, my dad was, he was a fighter pilot. He was very, mecha- he was, he loved cars. <clears throat> he was always tinkering on stuff. He was very mechanically oriented. So I grew up in that environment. And I think it would be not necessarily like when, when I say cars, I don't mean like, I don't care about like, you know, fan- like Lamborghini stuff like that, but like oddities, like weird, just off the map cars that I think are neat, and like cool. Um, like I always enjoyed just like seeing a car or even like a boat, just mechanical objects, um, just for their their quirkiness and their kind of like the story that they tell about you know like the time in history they were made and things like that. So I probably would have done something really foolish and bought like a vintage Boston Whaler boat or something like really dumb. And I live in the middle of Texas, so that tells you how smart I was at 21. <laughs> um, but probably something like that. Jared, what would you have done? A hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, at twenty-one, I I probably would have bought like some sort of insane ticket. Like you know how you can buy tickets to see a band at every single stop that they make, like around the world. That is so true for you. That is so true. Yeah, I would have been something, and they're crazy expensive too, because you have to. It includes the hotels and all this stuff, and I would probably do that, and that would probably take a big chunk out of a hundred grand, honestly. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Like, like going to every SEC stadium in a year or something like that. That'd be cool yeah. too. But no, I, I hear you. Yeah. Something like that. So well, let's just be glad. I mean, in this instance, let's be glad that we uh, weren't put in that situation. That yeah. or parakeets or flamingos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Parakeet. true. You know Parakeet. what I would do? You know how people put like lawn flamingos in their front yard? Yeah. I would do the real thing. Just right yeah. in front of my front, my, my, my front yard. Smart. What's what's what is what is interesting though about that that young man is he was actually trying to make a business. Whereas yeah. the three of us all went with I'd buy I, stuff. Like, and, like, yeah. like Adam could legitimately turn his exotic boat into you know like maybe he buys it and he realizes oh wait I don't live near water and he flips it and he sells it and he's like hey I just made ten grand. Like mine's, you know, maybe it accidentally turns into a travel blog or something, but at least this guy was trying. It's life life experience, Michael. You take those experiences, you fold them into yourself, your view of the world, they turn into your productivity. Let's look at it that way. Well, that's what it is. I'll take that. All right, guys. 
Thank you guys so much for offering your uh, your two cents and your insight. It's always much appreciated. Um, anything, guys? You guys want to add before we get out of here? I don't think so. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good. All right, guys. You guys have a good one. We'll talk to you next okay. time. Bye. All right. Bye. If you have a question for either Michael or Adam concerning this topic or anything else, please visit assetbuilder.com slash podcast. There you can find their contact information as well as the show notes for every single episode. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer, solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement of any particular security, product, or service. For more information, visit assetbuilder.com.